Well, I open God's Word now. I invite you to open with me to Joel chapter 2. We'll be reading here verses 1 through 11 this morning and contemplating, considering uh, this concept of the day of the Lord, which is spoken of here in these verses. And so as we continue our study of Joel, we come to Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's inspired and holy word. Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops, they leap. Like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is a great is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? This ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you again for your written word. We thank you that you give us an opportunity every Lord's Day to feast upon it as we prayed earlier. That as your word is proclaimed in public worship, that that is a, a feast for your people. And that you give us opportunity to supplement that feast through personal Bible study and corporate Bible studies and Sabbath schools. But we know that This is central to your worship, and so we ask that you would grant that as your word has been read and as it is now exposited, that that you would build up your people and glorify yourself hereby, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the day of the Lord, about which we just read, is an expression found at least 19 times explicitly in the Old Testament. We don't have time to go into all the other references that possibly could be touching on the concept of the day of the Lord. But as we'll see, it's, it's an expression that indicates a coming day of judgment. 
It can mean a time of God's wrath being poured out at various points in history, on various localities, and it can refer to an ultimate day of the Lord that we know is yet to come. The return of Christ, what we often call Judgment Day, is the ultimate day of the Lord. So today I want to examine first the general meaning of the day of the Lord in Scripture, and then we'll look verse by verse at what this particular passage has to say, this day of the Lord about which Joel is talking, what is it? Uh, And then finally we'll consider some conclusions we can draw about the ultimate day of the Lord. So first let's see what what we can learn in general. As I said, there are uh, about 19, at least 19 explicit references to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. One we already saw in Joel 1.15. Two more are, are in today's passage, so we'll deal with them in a little bit. Another two are in the book of Joel as well, at chapter 2, verse 31, and chapter 3, verse 14. And so, Lord willing, we will deal with their specific meanings and applications when we get to those passages. Uh, so that leaves us, though, 14 other Old Testament references, citations, or, expre- or uses of this expression, or form of it, of the Lord, day of the Lord. In Obadiah, verse 15, we read, For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return on your own head. The short book of Obadiah is a condemnation of the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, uh, for their not helping Judah, but helping Judah's enemies and for their rejoicing at the destruction of Jerusalem when the Babylonians destroyed the city. The day of the Lord there mentioned is a time of judgment on nations. And so in context we can see, especially for their persecution of God's covenant people. Edom saw its downfall in history, and the Edomites, who wickedly abused their Israelite cousins, not only received conquest of their own by the Babylonians and other difficulties in their history. But they're going to be judged on the last day also. Two references to the day of the Lord are found in Amos. Amos 5.18. Just in that verse, there are two. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for who... Or for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. We mentioned this last week as as this is a time where people might think they'll be like those who call Jesus Lord, Lord. And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. They might be looking with eagerness to the the coming day of the Lord. And and Amos is saying, it's not going to be light for you. It's going to be darkness. And then two verses later in Amos 5.20, he says, it's not the day of the Lord darkness and not light. Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? So we see this concept is associated with the concept of darkness. And there's a warning for those who may falsely believe that they are in covenant with God, that they're just fine, and are actually going to receive his wrath on that day of the Lord. Think of the three days of darkness as we think about darkness and what it means. Think of the three days of darkness in Egypt 
or the darkness for three hours when Jesus was on the cross. Pictures of judgment. Jesus came under God's judgment for us. And that was a, an element of it, was that, or a sign that it was going on, was that darkness that came upon the land. The verse between those two verses there in Amos, Amos 5.19, uh, describes an inescapable judgment. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. So just when you think you fled to safety, you're actually fleeing into danger. Today we might say, out of the frying pan into the fire. A man flees danger and he runs headlong into more danger. Isaiah has three explicit uses of the expression, day of the Lord. Isaiah 2, verse 12 For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. So a judgment on arrogance, pride. And it seems to be universal also. It's on everything that's lifted up. Isaiah 13.6 says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. So it's a day of destruction. Isaiah 13.9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. So there's a purging of sinners from the land, and, and we can actually translate the Hebrew word for land, the most common word is Eretz, and it can also be translated as earth. It could be the whole earth that sinners are being purged from, depending on which day of the Lord we're talking about. <clears throat> Ezekiel 13.5 says, to false prophets, you have not gone up into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. So in other words, the prophets who were supposed to strengthen Israel and prepare it for repentance so that judgment will not come upon them have actually weakened Israel rather than strengthening the nation and left the nation unprepared for God's coming judgment. <clears throat> In the wider context of Ezekiel, we see that the immediate day of the Lord, which he was warning about, was the coming destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. <coughs> Ezekiel was a prophet who had been taken into exile in Babylonia, and Jeremiah was with the people who had been left in Jerusalem, and they're both saying very similar things from different places to God's people. Ezekiel 30, verse 3 says, For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, it will be a day of clouds, the time of the Gentiles. So a day God uses foreign nations, Gentiles, to judge his people. Zephaniah also uses the expression to, to speak of the coming destruction of Judah by Babylon. Zephaniah 1, 7, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. So in other words, the, the slaughter in Jerusalem will be like a slaughter of livestock for sacrifices when somebody that invites guests to share a meal with them. God's invited these foreign armies to come and destroy Jerusalem. In Zephaniah 1.14, we see the expression twice, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter, there the mighty men shall cry out. So another 
expression about invading armies. And Zephaniah goes on to talk about God's wrath, trouble, and distress, devastation and desolation, darkness, gloominess, clouds again. So this idea of darkness and clouds and thick darkness, trumpets and alarm for the fortified cities of Judah. Zechariah talks either of the ultimate day of the Lord or of the coming destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans. Zechariah 14.1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. That certainly happened in AD 70, but also we can see a picture of God's judgment upon apostates, upon people who turned from him. Lastly, Malachi speaks of the Lord sending Elijah, which we know was fulfilled by John the Baptist, according to Jesus. Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So all of these references speak of coming judgment for cities, for nations, even for the world. Likewise, here in Joel 2, verses 1 through 11, we see the day of the Lord is a time of coming judgment for Judah. The kingdom has already experienced famine due to locusts and drought, and now the Lord tells the people of Judah to expect a day of even greater judgment with this invading army. The people of Jerusalem are warned to blow the trumpet. In chapter 1, it was to, to call a solemn assembly. Now it's to call people to arms, and a warning of coming invasion. Verse 1, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. As we saw in, in the references from Amos, especially that the day is described as a day of darkness. A day of judgment, in other words. The first part of verse 2, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. In Egypt, before the Passover and Moses' day, and on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, there was literal darkness. And some scholars actually think this might be pointing to the kind of darkness that you see the sky being darkened because of the smoke of the destruction of cities and towns and farms. But we don't have to read that literally as literal darkness but also we can see it symbolically. Uh, Joel's statements, like those of most prophets in the Old Testament, are made in the form of poetry. And so like David in Psalm 18, describing the Lord's wrath against his enemies. In Psalm 18, verses 9 through 12, David writes, He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. So notice how many times David refers to darkness and thick clouds and gloominess there, to put it in the words of Joel. Now, if we read the history of David's life in the Old Testament, we don't read of that literally happening where, the God, where God stepped in and rescued him with clouds and darkness and those sorts of things. 
But we do see the Lord rescuing David many a time. So David is poetically describing God's intervention on his behalf using this language of judgment on sinners. Similarly, as we read the historical books of the Bible, we don't find an account of literal days of darkness in Judah in this time period, whether it's talking about the destruction of Babylon or of Jerusalem by the Babylonians or uh, more likely the invasion of Judah by the Assyrians in the days of Hezekiah. Rather, in the second half of verse 2, we see this as a poetic description of an invasion by a foreign army. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Now, it's helpful to note in the Hebrew there that phrase for many successive generations is important. Uh, The Hebrew says, to the years of generation and generation. So it's not that there will never be anything like this again, but it's just that it will be at least a couple of generations before anybody sees anything like this. And Judah has never seen anything like this. This invasion is even more formidable than the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom of Israel. If Joel's describing the Assyrian invasion of Judah around 701 B.C., it's not going to be until 605 B.C., almost a century later, more than two generations, uh, before the kingdom will endure anything like this again. And if it's the Babylonian invasion that's being spoken of here, then there won't be anything like it in Israel until the days of the Romans and after Jesus' time on earth. But look at how this invasion is described. The enemy burns everything. He lays waste to the whole land. Just as the, the land seems to be recovering from the locusts and the drought... It's once again devastated. Can you imagine living at that time and and just feeling like, well, it looks like things are getting better. (laughs) Oh, the crops this year are growing and there aren't any locusts eating this up. And then here comes this invading army. And the land is described as being like the Garden of Eden in front of this enemy army. But when they pass by, they leave a wilderness behind them. Nothing but wasteland. Verse 3, a fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. This was something the Assyrians in particular were known for doing, this kind of wholesale destruction, especially of people that they felt had had defied them. They would destroy their land. Joel writes then in verse 4, Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds, so they run. Now, some think that Joel is returning to the description of the locusts here, and some think, of course, this is a figurative way of speaking about the locusts altogether, this army here, but they'll note that the locust's head looks somewhat like that of a horse. If you look closely at a locust, its head looks something like a horse's head. However, others see appearance here as having... Uh, to do not with how they look, but how they show up. So somebody makes an appearance at your party, right? That kind of appearance. Uh, They come speedily like horses. John Calvin writes of this. He says, this verse sets forth again the suddenness of vengeance, as though the prophet had said that long distance would be no obstacle, for the Assyrians would quickly move and occupy Judea, 
for distance deceived the Jews, and they thought there would be a long respite to them. So in other words, uh, Calvin's saying the, the Jews of Joel's day might have been thinking, well, the Assyrians are dangerous, but they're way over there. And we'll know long before they get here, because it's a long way for them to come. We'll hear about it before they get here. And Joel's saying, no, nah, they're going to get here so fast you won't have time to prepare. Calvin says, hence the prophet removes this vain confidence when he says that they would be like horses and horsemen. They're coming fast. Both the swiftness and the clamor of the enemy army is described in verse 5 with, with a noise like chariots over mountaintops. They leap like the noise of flaming fire that devours the stubble like a strong people set in battle array. Facing this dreadful enemy, the people of Judah will be dismayed. They'll be discouraged. Verse 6, before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. You can imagine the picture there of somebody seeing a sudden danger come upon them and they just turn white. Their faces just drain of color. The strength and discipline of the Assyrian army is described in verses 7 and 8. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. So that's a way of saying that they're they're not easily killed. Even if they take risks in battle, they they lunge between the enemy weapons. They're not killed, probably because they're well armored. They'll enter cities to destroy and plunder them. They'll overwhelm their defenses. Verse 9, they run to and fro in the cities. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. Now, if that's meant to describe Jerusalem, it would have to be talking about what happened in 586 B.C., uh, something that happened uh, not when the Assyrians invaded, but when the Babylonians did. But one possibility is that it would be talking about the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon in 586, or even to the Romans in AD 70, but a couple of things should be noted. For one thing, uh, Joel doesn't specify which city here. When the Assyrians invaded in 701 BC in the days of Hezekiah, they destroyed every city in Judah except for Jerusalem. For another thing, as we see later in this chapter, predictions of judgment always come with a way of escape, through repentance. Jerusalem's return to godliness under Hezekiah's reign is what prevented the capture of the city. Even though God's judgment came upon the land, it wasn't the full judgment and the full destruction of the land for the city of Jerusalem was rescued. God forgave and he rescued. Verse 10 describes the calamity with cosmic language now. So so this could be that, that Jerusalem is spared and we're talking here about other cities But in verse 10 we see the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. Again, this is how things are described, of course, when there's smoke from destruction, but, but we can also see this as very symbolic language of destruction. Think again of how David poetically described God's intervention on his behalf in Psalm 18. In verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 18 he says, The earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken. 
Again, there's no literal earthquake described in the historical books talking about David's rescue by God from other peoples or from his enemies like Saul or like the Philistines. But God certainly intervened, and David speaks of it poetically like this. The earth shook and trembled, the foundation of the hills also quaked and were shaken. Because he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, coals were kindled by it. That's poetic language. It's as if God was breathing fire and fuming smoke on behalf of David. But notice that the Assyrians are not the ones in control here, if we presume that this is the Assyrians we're talking about here. Whoever this army is, they are not in control. It's actually God who's in control. They're called his army. Verse 11, the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? So we see the day of the Lord is clearly a time of judgment. It's a time of chastisement for God's people. It's a time of judgment that comes upon nations. So judgment on nations who persecute his people. Judgment on his visible covenant people for rebellion against him. The historic days of the Lord in the Old Testament, especially of which we read Scripture, offer us a picture of the great day of the Lord, though, that is still to come. In 1 Thessalonians 5.2, Paul refers to it saying, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So like a thief, it's not going to announce it's coming. If any of you have ever had anything stolen, how many people left you a voicemail or left a note on your door? I'll be here at 3 a.m. to steal your stuff. Um, No, thieves don't announce themselves, right? So it's going to come unannounced. You have to be ready at any time for it. But it does have certain prerequisites, which Paul says have to be met. 2 Thessalonians 2.2 says that Christians in Paul's day needed not to be troubled, fearing that the day of Christ had already come. And when we examine uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, when we did that a couple of years ago, you might recall, those of you who were here, we saw that it's, it's fair to consider that those criteria actually have been met. So that leaves us with the exhortation, Well, it'll come like a thief in the night, so be ready at any time. Peter likewise tells us to be ready. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away. So here we're not talking about destruction of a local place. We're talking about the, the entire changing of the world. The undoing of the world as we know it, and its resurrection, as it were, into the new heavens and new earth. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And Peter also encourages us to hope for this. So it sounds scary, but he says, no, hope for it. Be eager for the day of the Lord. 2 Peter 3 11 through 13, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So there, one thing he's asking is, look at all these things on the earth, the things that, that capture the attention of our sinfulness. Well, they're just going to be burned up. So what kind of people ought you to be? And he implies here, well, we know what holy in conduct and godliness. He says, looking for 
and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So without this coming day of the Lord, there won't be the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter says, be ready for the day of the Lord. Live in godliness in preparation for its coming. All of these things we see in the Old Testament books that show what those historic days of the Lord were like. Also, after the writing of most of the books of the New Testament, the destruction of of Jerusalem in AD 70 was pictured by Jesus as a picture of the coming judgment of God upon the nations. We know it's coming. We don't know when. We know it is coming. So live in godliness, Peter says, in preparation for its coming. But look forward to it. It's not something to be avoided. Remember, must have been sometime back in the 1990s there was an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie called End of Days. And, and Schwarzenegger saw that the, the, the time of predicted in the book of Revelation was coming and the end of the world was coming and what was his job? To stop it. <clears throat> well, we don't want to stop it. Not, not that we could. We can't make it come any faster than God has determined. We can't keep it from coming. But it's not something we should want to stop as God's people. No, it's not a pretty picture when we think of judgment, but it glorifies God, and that's something that we should, should really rejoice in. But we look forward to it, and we should look forward to it eagerly. For what will be the result, Peter says there? Only righteousness will dwell in the world that comes thereafter. And that should be our most joyous hope, to look forward eagerly to the time when only righteousness dwells. Nothing is left that displeases God or that brings his wrath upon us or anyone else. And so let's rejoice that there is a coming day of the Lord, be prepared for that coming day of the Lord, and look forward to it with eagerness. Let's pray. Lord, grant that we may be well prepared for the day of the Lord, living in godliness and holiness, eagerly awaiting the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of his people, and in whose name we pray. Amen.